And Michael Morrell is the uh, former acting director of the CIA. I am a former actor who right. played the director of the CIA. So th- those, ah, are, okay. those, are, those are my qualifications. Uh, Welcome to the Live Drop. This is Mark Valley. My guest is retired General Michael Hayden. He is a career intelligence professional. He was the director of NSA during 9-11. He was the deputy DNI. He was CIA director. He's written two very important books, Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, and most recently, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in the Age of Lies. Um, General Hayden is very outspoken. He's been a proponent of transparency since the early 2000s when he was with the NSA. Um, Appropriately, we talked a little bit about Intelligence 101. Um, what it is that uh, intelligence people are going for, the types of intelligence, the various disciplines, how it's collected, uh, analyzed, and distributed to um, influence and also stay out of politics. Uh, we talked about objective reality. It comes from the Enlightenment and the Federalist Papers and how our drift, current drift away from it right now is, uh, is costing our country. Um, he also revealed to me what he thinks is the biggest threat our country in a post-truth world. General Hayden said that the intelligence professional is the storyteller. They get to talk first. So here he goes. Enjoy. Because this is early on in my podcast, I'd like to do a little bit of uh, Intelligence 101. And <clears throat> maybe you could, um, you mentioned in your book that you know good information is hunted. It's not kind of amassed um, passively, but it is a large intelligence system that we have here with 17 different agencies and possibly more right um maybe you could just describe where the information is um maybe the types who collects it and how they work together in this kind of intelligence cycle sure Sure. that should should take us about 40 minutes (laughs) yeah that's right i teach a class on this (laughs) um for better or for worse the american intelligence community is organized around the lines of how it collects information doesn't have to be that way. You know, we could have an organization for Europe, an organization for Asia. We don't. We have an organization that can collects intelligence through human sources, the CIA, through electronic sources, NSA, through imagery, NGA, and and so on. All right. So we are we are organized around around those disciplines. Now, it, what makes this very challenging. Is, is number one, each of those organizations require a fairly different culture in order to be able to do their job. I mean, it's it's like specialties in medicine, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't go to a GP if you're going to do brain surgery. Actually, brain surgery requires quite a fairly narrow focus and, frankly, makes brain surgeons think about things in a different way than cardiovascular surgeons. But, of course, you're looking for the healthy body, so the challenge we have is maintaining the culture within each of these big, muscular, uh, well-resourced national agencies to do this specific task, but then get them to play team ball so that the information flows fairly easily between and among them. So so that's, that's one aspect. The second, and I really feel compelled to mention this, is everything I just told you, signals, human imagery, and so on, that, that's information that we steal. I mean, that's what espionage agencies do. Right. And, and that's, that's going to be important forever. But, you know, it's not nearly as important as it used to be. In, in today's world, 
interconnected, information-based, globalized, I, I could go on. Even open source intelligence. There's exactly. So there is so much information available that really doesn't have to be purloined. In addition to playing team ball between and among the disciplines, the overall intelligence community now has to not be so arrogant to think that only stolen information is important and that they need to develop the culture to appreciate readily available data and fold that into their final product. So there was traditionally a value that if you, if you took, and took intelligence, yeah. if you had to sneak around, if you had the more effort it took to get it, added to its value, but that's not necessarily that's, true. That's good stuff, right. And so, and so, you know, the intel guy gets to talk first in, in all the meetings, National Security Council, in the Situation Room, in the, in the Oval, and so on. And it gets to, to tell the meeting, it gets to talk in the meeting first because it's the teller of the story. For most of our existence, all of the story has been secret, and there is a danger that we've now identified ourselves as the teller of secrets rather than the teller of the story. And if we focus on we're the teller of the secrets, we're not going to get to talk first anymore because other people are actually going to have a better story than we do. That's interesting. I mean, on one hand, if you're the teller of secrets, it could make it could make the anticipation for your story a little bit a little bit more. You could have it could be people could confused and thinking maybe it's a little more compelling if it's if it's a secret well yeah but uh, i'll give you an example all right uh i was i was decent friends with a fellow named omar suleiman who was the head of the egyptian intelligence service and omar was actually a good friend good counterterrorism partner for us he was a guy who could talk to both the palestinians and the israelis i mean what a great what a great partner uh, omar also kept his good air force buddy Hosni Mubarak in power for 30 years by doing what he had to do inside Egyptian society. And then what, six years ago or so, some unfortunate Tunisian fruit merchant sets himself afire, and six weeks later, I got a million people in Tahir Square overthrowing the Egyptian government. Right. There was no secret in Omar Suleiman's safe that if I'd have stolen, would have enabled me or the intelligence community to tell President Obama Hey, big guy, we're going to have a real big problem here in Cairo. If we were going to do that, it was going to come not from the purloined dossier, it was going to be on Twitter. but from a general understanding of the cultural, economic, social, and technological changes sweeping North Africa. And which, by the way, you can read about without going to CIA. You've been a proponent of transparency since your time of the NSA, since the time of the liberty versus security uh, debates. Um, this is sort of a trans- transition from what we've been talking about, but does transparency then have the same value or meaning that it does now? Uh, how, how do you mean? Then as it does now in terms of my mind, do I still believe that strongly, even been out of government for 10 years? Yes. Well, also, but I'm, does it have as much value? I mean, do people? Well, I guess what I'm getting toward is is your your talk recently about um, you know a rejection of objective reality. I mean, right. is transparency is it as believed now? Is it as valuable because it ah, do people okay. believe it? Doesn't matter. Does it have the same effect? Yes. Because we're kind of in a non fact based world, and 
people have already made up their minds, they have their pre-existing narrative, and there's not much I can say to explain it's going to make them change their mind, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, and I and, and so, so number one, I, I think we get to that dark place I just described back to you because we haven't been transparent enough, all right? So we've got this overall suspicion of government. But I take your point. I'll give you a concrete example. <clears throat> Early in the Trump administration, there, there was this, I mean, constant argument, recall this, over unmasking U.S. identities in intercepted communications. It, 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 the, the technical term we have is minimization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you pick up a U.S. identity, you suppress it, unless, of course, it's necessary to understand the intelligence. And in any event, I mean, that, that, that became almost a demonic debate between two political sides in America, where tribe, loyalty, grievance, and fear were dominating things. And I, I went on the air pretty routinely to, to, to actually say, this is actually pretty routine. I mean, right. let me show you how this works. This is normal. If this one is end, how is, if one end is dirty, one end yeah. is dirty, we follow it. Yeah, and, and I kept saying it, and I think I made some progress, but not totally. Mm-hmm. People who should know better still have this, you know, forces of light versus the forces of darkness view of what was happening and what Susan Rice or, or other folks were doing in terms of wanting to know, well, who was that person being talked about? And I, I wrote about it. I said, look, I don't know Susan Rice's heart. And any good thing can be misused. But on the surface, this looks really average. Yeah, you said the forces of dark and the forces of, of, of light. Um a large part of the American public is more interested in Darth Vader. There's a suspicion <laughs> that we have this deep state or there's just conspiracy right. theories that are going on. Right. They seem to get a lot of traction. Yeah, I mean, I, I've written a lot lately about a post-truth world in Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year in 2016 and defined as decision-making based less on facts, evidence, and data and more on feeling, preference, emotion, tribe, loyalty, loyalty fear, grievance, yes. and, and so on. And I, you know, I go back home. I'm a Western Pennsylvanian. I go back home, and I, I run into that pretty routinely. Not, not that I don't find it in D.C. either. It's almost like there's two countries out there right now. There is, and we make, uh, we make our judgments with regard to truth based upon the team jerseys that are being worn. You talked about objective you know, objective realities. You said other presidents have other presidents have argued it. Um, some have lied about it, um, like Richard Nixon. I was just watching. Yes. Um, I was just watching the Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam. Yeah. And um, have you seen that by any chance? I have. I have yeah. And uh, well, I'm sure you're, you're you're probably more familiar with it. But it seemed that General Westmoreland was he wasn't really dealing with objective reality. And, you know, I, I can't, I can't again read into the heart of the man. Uh, I, I can tell you this: uh, when you're given a task, like you're the commander of MACV, uh, Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, or you're running the show in Afghanistan and so on, um, and you're giving yourself a grade, <laughs> and you're right. reporting to the commander in chief, the tendency is to put a little happier face on the situation than might exist. Uh, you recall in Vietnam, CIA had a pretty dark view of how things were going. And even in Afghanistan, uh, I would go to the situation room. And here, believe me, I'm not talking about dishonesty at all. 
right. that we would go to the Situation Room <clears throat> and we'd get a briefing from from the guys across the river from the Department of Defense on, you know, here's how it's going and here's our metrics and here are the trend lines. And of course, you know, all the lines were going like that, you know. Right. And occasionally they were going like that so much that as we're leaving, I'd grab Steve Hadley and say, hey, Steve, can I walk back? To, to your office with you, the National Security Advisor. He said, yeah, Mike, that's fine. And I go, Steve, my guys don't have that much of a smiley face on this. Right. All right, I'm not saying these guys are wrong. I'm just yeah. telling you, if you'd have gotten that briefing from us, it would not nearly have been as optimistic. And so the, the, there's almost a condition mm-hmm. built in, okay, that, that the, the, the guys who are doing the fighting, I mean, their job, their job is to do their job is to accomplish. And so their story is all about and how this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Intel guys, their job is to observe and to analyze. And, and so, you know, uh, you, you, you tell me which one's more objective. I'm just telling you that instinctively I can kind of predict who's who's on the top of the, the bar in the chart and who's on the bottom of the bar in the chart. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, back to back to objective reality. We said really there are I mean, there's. There's competing, competing facts, I guess. I don't know how right. you would call right. it. But, but um, who is ultimately in our America? This is an even bigger question than the first one I probably asked you. But was how, how, who was responsible in our American system for presenting objective reality? And how does it work in our system? How does it work in this system? Yeah, so, so if, you, if you read the, the, the foundational documents and particularly kind of leaf your way through the Federalist Papers, all mm-hmm. right? It, it is imbued with Enlightenment philosophy, which which is kind of summarized as you can know truth, that the pursuit of truth is noble, that it is it is achievable, that reality is complex, that we should have humility in the face of complexity, and, and that, frankly, objective reality is the best working theory of the moment right. as to what reality is, because <laughs> it, it evolves. And, and so the founders go out of their way to say this isn't going to work without without an informed citizenry. And, and so I, I think it's a generalized responsibility. Now, now that said, um, maybe the what I would call the fact Sherpas inside the government right. have a have a deeper responsibility. I mean, like, for example, the Center for Disease Control. Yes. I, I want them to be pretty straightforward <laughs> with right. regard to their. I, <laughs> I don't want a rosy intel- picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the intelligence community, kind of, kind of the same way. And and to be fair, to be fair, we knew at the agency, all right, that there is a difference between intelligence speech and political speech, all right. And, and that, so you know, it's not truth, not truth, but there is a difference. There is more space in political speech, okay, to 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 say things for effect rather than within intelligence speech. Uh, where you're really struggling for the most precise adverb you can find. Mark, I'll give you one concrete example. A nightmare for CIA that happened after I left was when the Obama administration said, hey, why don't you guys write the talking points for Benghazi? Right. right? There's, there's only one good answer to that. No. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you write them, we'll check your spelling. Right? Sure. Be- because if you look at characterizing who did the attack, all right? You could have said armed men. You could have said a mob. You could have said terrorists. You could have said al-Qaeda. All those words are correct. 
Now, some are more specific than others, but all of them are correct and all of them are freighted, heavily freighted politically. Mm-hmm. You don't. That's a decision for a politician to make as to how he chooses to present the event to constituents. That is not something that should be imposed on the intelligence guys. They should be allowed to use their own language. And they, they in fact, they, they would have gone down to the most specific possible language. Right. Oh, so politically, you can kind of back up into general general terms. Right. Yeah, you, you can, you can up the level of abstraction. Yeah, say anti-Americans you know. or call them anything. Right. Yeah. So, An unruly group of men, uh, armed men, and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, the job of the intelligence community is to get into, or at least it might have been, I forget who it was. It, it might have had something to do with the presidential daily brief or something. But you said our job is to get into the mind of the president yes. and affect his deliberations. Yes. Um, it, it, seems, it seems that part of the problem right from day one is that the intelligence community isn't getting into the mind of the president. And I was just wondering, have you, how, how, is, how is the intelligence community roughly, how have they adapted to that? So, so to, to, to be fair to all presidents... Uh, it's the job of the intelligence community to get inside any president's head. And I, I, I tell this little extended metaphor that might be useful, that uh, the president and the intel briefer go into the same room, but they go through different doors. And the, and the intel doors marked facts, and the president's doors marked vision, you know, the one you voted for. Facts, vision, world as it is, world as we want it to be. Uh, inductive. Sea of information, general conclusions. The president, deductive, first principles. How do I apply them? And and then finally, intelligence guys are inherently pessimistic. Politicians are inherently optimistic. Otherwise, they would not have interviewed with you for the job, right? And so, so you've got that speed bump with any president. Sure. We 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 always knew it was going to be even greater with this president, with with Donald Trump. Number one, he had no governmental experience, and 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 number two. He has this almost preternatural self-confidence in his own instincts and in, in his own a priori narrative of how the world works. And he's got a personality quirk that forces him to give relevance to a piece of data more by who told him than by what evidentiary stack you might have underneath that particular piece of data, very personal kind of. And and then finally, he's uh, whereas President Bush learned in the discussion, President Obama learned in the reflection. President Trump seems to be a visual learner. And so you you put all that together is one tough customer. And and and, and let me let me just cut to the to the experience. How has that worked out? I, I say in the book, and I stand by it. All right. The instinctive departure point for the president, for what he says or does, the instinctive departure point is not objective reality. It is something else. And and, and that's, that, by, by the way, that's different than lying, you know, where you do sure. recognize objective reality and then choose to mis, misrepresent it. it that's not it. Um there was a scene, John Dickerson, CBS, was interviewing the president uh, probably about a year ago now. And, and John was pressing him on, come on now, did Barack Obama really wiretap Trump Tower? Yes. Well, what evidence do you have? What evidence? Come on. Get, what? And, and, of course, the president's really getting mad. And he gets up and he walks behind the desk in the Oval. But Dickerson oh, I saw stopped. That, 
Like he's on TV, yeah. starts pretending he's yeah. writing something on his desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start, starts doing presidential stuff, right? right? And then Dickerson says, Mr. President, what evidence do you have? And the president stands up and this is really telling. And he does this a lot. It's almost like a verbal tick. His argument, his evidence was, a lot of people agree with me. A lot of people are saying. That is the definition of a post-truth world. If I can make it trending, if I can make it popular, good enough. Right. It's real. If I can make smoke, then there's fire somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, I imagine, do they ever do, do they ever do improvisations with, with, with someone like that, with different personalities? Like somebody could go and actually maybe get Alec Baldwin to play the president. You can kind of practice a briefing with them. Um, actually, there is a story that, um, true story, that Tony Snow, rest his soul, the former newsman, but was also head of White House Communications, um, during the uh, 41 administration, okay, Bush 41, actually went to um, the Saturday Night Live actor who was doing the impression. <laughs> oh, Dana. George Dana. Yeah, Dan Carvey. Yeah, and went to him and actually had a pretty long session about the president's mannerisms and, and all the things that right. he had observed to yeah. create the persona for Saturday Night Live. I guess the other thing I was going to say is I, I noticed maybe a week or two ago that the director of CIA, Gina Haskell, she was talking at a university and yeah. she said that, I mean, she def- she's, I usually pick, I usually I really haven't been paying that much attention to the, to the news the past 30 years, but I don't usually see a CIA director or NSA director, for that matter, kind of talking about um, like a conflicting reality from, 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 from the president. Uh, she mentioned something about how it's going to be very difficult to get nuclear weapons away from the North Koreans, and I thought either this is her kind of covering her butt or, no, or the intelligence her. community is like, isn't just trying to get into the president's head anymore. It's trying to go somewhere else. You know, look, there's nobody who's done this for a living. I mean, I mean, this is a universal truth. Right. Who believes that man is ever going to give up all of his nuclear weapons? All right. That is, that is a non-starter. Right. By the way, Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, says mm-hmm. the same thing. Now, now, neither Gina nor Senator Coates runs out there and screams and beats their chests and tries to pick a fight. But when they give the opportunity, you know, the, 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 the rounded edges position is, well, it, I think it's going to be quite difficult to get Kim to give up his weapons. And we're all going, hell yeah, he's never going to give them up. He's not crazy. And that's that's that, that, that harkens back to what we talked earlier. You know, if you're the fact bearer, you're the truth Sherpa. Right. You, 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 the president is not your only constituent. Yeah, that's what you I was going to ask you. You are America's intelligence people. Yes. And and you need to you need to act that way. So how much long? I mean, it's. I mean, it was funny seeing. Oh my God, the CIA has when the CIA CIA first came up with a Twitter site. Oh <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It, I thought, wait, I don't. Where, where is this? Where is this going to go? I mean, ultimately, I'm mean, somebody like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. They might have the presidency here more than um, some people in the intelligence community. I think. I think that's right. Do you do you see? Do you foresee any other? back channels that the intelligence community could be using or at, at its extreme, maybe starting a, a network. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, right, right. <laughs> no, I, I don't. And so I don't envy the, the tasks of the folks, you know, my, my uh, tribal 
uh, brethren right. that I that I left behind, and they've got to go in there. And, and number one, you know, you got to respect the president. Yes. You, you know, you, you carry Ohio, carry Pennsylvania, carry Michigan, carry Wisconsin. Guess what? You get the secrets. All right. And so you you, you got to go in there, respect the fact that he is the president of the United States. Respect the fact that God made him differently than other presidents, just like every other president is different from every other president. And then you try to work with what you have. And I, I, I just repeat what I said earlier, though. This is not a speed bump. This is a precipice in, in terms of trying to adjust to how this president makes decisions. He is spontaneous. He is intuitive. He is instinctive. He is prone to action. Boy, that's a witch's brew for, right. for an intelligence officer. And, and so you just you just have to keep working. And, and then, Mark, at some point, at some point, something's going to become so important that someone's just going to have to say, you know what? I am no longer a guardrail. My continued presence here means I am either an enabler or a legitimizer. And I can't stay. Yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned that in your choice they have to make. Yeah, you mentioned that in your your tweet. I think the president was giving some. I think he was giving a speech, and he was. Well, there was one this past week, and doesn't doesn't involve my tribe. But recall, he was uh, out there uh, in in the rose garden, uh, insulting a newswoman, in essence saying she was stupid, and he had an he had his a, coterie not, behind him. Right. Not the luck of the draw. A bunch of old white men, <laughs> all behind him either nodding or smiling or laughing. And I, I tweeted out then, everybody in this picture, you own this. You own this forever. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, what is it good people have to do, should do, who are just trying to do the right thing for America, who find themselves in this circumstance? What's the right course of action? And it's not easy. So you've also talked a lot about the... Um, you know, the the Russians. You cited this work by Grasimov, I think, where you know they're they're um, you know how they exploit existing divisions as opposed to creating new divisions. Right. Um, right. But I wanted to get into that. But I wanted to roll back just a little bit. Um, you you said you had a, you had a, a speech right after um, shortly after nine one one to the employees at NSA, and at the end of it, you said um, you talked about what our job is, what our job is right. at this point. I'm sure it was a very it was a very tense moment, but you mentioned something like about making Americans feel safe, right. and, and that's a term that I hear every once in a while. And I, I, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what does that what does that mean anymore? Okay, so wow, boy, there's a lot of things to un unpack from that. So number one, yeah, I gave the speech, and, and, the, and the whole punchline at the end was, let me tell you our job, because free peoples always have to balance their liberty, their security, their safety, and their privacy. We Americans, blessed by friendly or weak neighbors and two really big oceans. We've been living a pretty comfortable life here and up tucked near privacy and liberty. And then I said, and based on what happened earlier this week, that is under threat. So here's the plan. We're going to keep America free by making Americans feel safe again. And that was because we, we realized, you know, that, that, Mark, if that had happened a second time, who would we be today? You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. And so we we were. We, we were very, very serious about that. Now the question you're asking is, so uh, where's the danger today? What does safety mean? And, and frankly, and I, I, when people pay me to come give a speech at a trade association or something, they generally say, you know, General, what keeps you awake at night? You know, Russia, China, Korea, and so on. 
And I said, well, look, I got four or five things. I'll cover them all. But I got to tell you, the thing that keeps me most awake at night right now is the United States of America. Correct. We are we are the most destabilizing force in the world today. And I, I said, that's not an accusation. That's just a description. We don't have legions about ready to cross borders and seize territory. I'm just saying we are a big, important, powerful nation, and we seem incredibly unsure of how it is we want to act in a world that for 75 years has looked to us to act like the adult in the room. That's our biggest threat. It, well, it, it is. Look, we, we, there are kind of three handshakes that we've had for the last 75 years, and I realize we've been different in different points in our history. Three handshakes are, number one, uh, alliances are a good thing, not a burden. Number two, we are a better nation for immigration than we would be without it. And number three, free trade, the freer the better, advantages the world's most mature, powerful economy. And all three of those things now mark a jump balls. Yeah. It's funny. It's, I mean, it kind of goes back to you saying what is our, what makes us feel unsafe. The things that are making people feel unsafe right now, they do have to do with feeling, preference, emotion, tribe, loyalty, yeah. grievance, fear, immigration, for, for example. I think, yeah, I think we need to examine what it is that's making us not feel safe in order to to really understand that because I, I think turning it on america yeah. is going to be a tough it's going to be a tough <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think there, the president's going to say line. you know the, our only our lincoln. only fear is ourself ourself not fear itself yeah. right? it, it, it's a great line from lincoln say uh, paraphrasing now but you know it's a long time ago lincoln says no none of the powerful armies of europe can take a drink from the ohio without our giving our permission Wow. And so he was trying to describe that our dangers are not from without. They're, they are from within. That would be a possible ending for uh, the <laughs> interview right now. But I do have a few more moments of your time, and I just wonder if I could ask you a few more questions. So, um, sure. okay. you mentioned, do a little product placement here with a Diet Coke. I can hear the music in the background. Yeah. I want to take a little break from my discussion with General Hayden. Uh, to talk to you about a premium headphone brand. It's probably appropriate that I'm speaking to the former director of the NSA, and now I'm going to promote some headphones. They're Scandinavian, uh, Swedish design. Their aim is to introduce here headphones that are not only a fantastic electronic product, but can be easily integrated into everyday life as a style and accessory. I have a pair myself. They look cool. They're black. The best thing about them is um, the sound is very good, but not only that, I felt like I was transported in a way i felt like i was listening to the music where it was being made anyway for more information check it out www.sudio.com it's s-u-d-i-o they're a great fit they look cool and uh they work really well thanks now back to general hayden um let's see i think we get into now like what is it what's our what's our cleanup going to look like i mean how, how are we going to get americans to kind of look at you know, read the Federalist Papers and start to, you know, yeah. kind of value objective yeah. reality again. But I, I wanted to throw something in like the um, you said the Russians have been you know, trying to exploit divisions. I think recently they I think today it was just reported that they weighed in on the, they're weighing in on the Kavanaugh nomination. So I went on I went to a website called Hamilton 68. It's a dashboard of Russian controlled bots. Right. Uh, the leading the, the leading hashtag in Russian control bots right Last time I checked, which was yesterday afternoon, was MAGA. 
Okay. Right. There were three. There were three other heavily trending Russian hashtags on Russian-controlled bots that cumulatively blew everything else out of the water in terms of thematics. And they were Kavanaugh, confirm Kavanaugh, and confirm Kavanaugh now. So they're playing with our heads. Right. Right. I mean, they, I don't think they really have an interest as to who the ninth justice in the court is, but they really, they really have an interest in in, in making us divided and, and, and argumentative, and distracted. Oh, that's that's a, that's an important to point out. They don't really want to have a role in American policy or decision making. They just want, <laughs> they just want to yeah. piss everybody off so that their own so that they have a little more relevance. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is that. Um, on the uh, take a knee controversy, which began a year ago today, all right, with a speech in Huntsville, Alabama. So the president gives, gives his speech on a Friday night, and those SOBs, except he doesn't use letters, he uses words. And mm-hmm. before he gets back to the East Coast, Mark, the, 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 the leading hashtags on Russian control bots are NFL, take the knee, and take on knee. <laughs> and, and it's taste great and less filling. The, the bots are pushing free speech and respect for the flag. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned in your your speech. Uh, I really enjoyed that, by the way. They even split it up online okay. so you could read it. The speech at the the um, what was it called? The Atlantic. Um, oh, this is uh, the Atlantic Council, the one I did this week. At the Atlantic this. Council. Yeah, your oh, Sweden, Hayden yeah. Hayden's speech was trending. Or Hayden talk was was <laughs> trending. Oh, that's kind of cool, Hayden talk. You know. Yeah. But you, uh, you mentioned you you. you there was a lot you there's a lot you said in a, in a very short amount of time but there was um you mentioned something about Russians exploiting divisions but you said it didn't work for the Norwegians and yeah. I was just wondering if you could clarify maybe sure. why so if if we did, would ever do anything like what the Russians did and then again I ran CIA so you know um we would have called it covert influence right and there is an iron law of physics when it comes to covert influence which is you're wasting your time trying to create divisions in a society Covert influence only works when you cleverly identify pre-existing fractures and then exploit and worsen them. So put another way, if you, if you want the Russians not to be successful fooling around with our heads, uh, the, the, the real answer is get our heads straight. And then my line was, you know, they try this stuff on the Norwegians. It doesn't work because Norway's not in the same sociocultural, political environment that we are. Um, they don't have as many natural divisions. Right. They, they, they don't. And, and as a society, politically, it's far more unified than American society is right now. So put, put the immigration and the multi- multiculturalism aside. It's at the political level, too. They're not as divided. You mentioned something about uh, – well, this might get a little bit heavy, but um, <laughs> you mentioned something about information dominance versus cyber – yeah. Dominance. Uh, could you maybe just explain that a little bit? Sure. So I, I got introduced to this whole cyber thing about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was assigned to Texas, coming out of the Balkans, all right, where, you know, you had a war that was very medieval in conduct and cause. I go to Texas, take command of an Air Force unit. They're a really big one, about 17,000 folks, called the Air Intelligence Agency. And that agency was on the cutting edge thinking about this new cyber thing. So I learned an awful lot about what I have retained about cyber from the young folks down there. And we had an argument down there as to what, what are we really trying to do here? 
-hmm. are we trying to establish for the United States cyber dominance or information dominance? And information dominance, cyber was a part of it, but there were other elements to it as well. Deception, public affairs, public diplomacy, and, 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 and so on. And we, we had very serious debates. What should we do? And the line I generally use is, since we now have a cyber command, not an information dominance command, you know how this turns out. And we decided, you know, this cyber thing is tough enough. Uh, this other thing over here looks really complicated. And oh, by the way, in our political culture, you can't really do that information dominance thing very long without starting to stub your toes on the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So we just backed away. And the story I tell now is that we backed away, but the Russians, they went to door number two. The Russians went to information dominance, and the seminal think piece for them was written by a Russian general, who's now chief of the general staff, named Valery Gerasimov in which he talked about contactless warfare using informational means against an adversary's target population. That ought to sound familiar. Right. It kind of explains itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Russians went for information dominance. Yeah. And they, they've, they've used it. By the way, their first target population was Russia. <laughs> they, they, they info bubbled their own people. Then they went to Russian. Then they went to Russian speaking and Russian Ukraine. speaking, right? And then to Europe, and then they took the show on the road. Is that the way toward unifying Americans as well? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of uh, cynical. Uh, I mean, that, say that last part again? I mean, is that is that the answer to kind of you know bringing America together again using information? Do we have to use information <laughs> dominance? Well, I mean, you know what you say matters, and, and so um, how about the president on the South Lawn? This week, going after uh, Dr. Ford, okay, right, or or the president at that rally in Mississippi, going after Doc, Dr. Ford, and you know, it, it, it fair, fair enough to disagree with Dr. Ford, all right, but that's not what the president did. He attacked her, okay, right. and and why did he do that? Be, because his his broad campaign technique is to divide. His broad campaign technique is to appeal to the sense of victimization. And, you know, he's got 49.5% of the pop, the American population, people like you and me, who feel they're victimized right. okay, because they're men. And, 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 you know, that is not what a president ought to be doing. A president should not be reinforcing the darker angels of our nature. And so there, there, there is a bit of messaging that we really ought to get from our national leaders that pull us towards a national discussion rather than to our darker corners. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm one of the most ill effects of the Trump presidency has been his instinct to pull us to our darker corners and to divide us rather than attempt to unite us and calm us. Has this happened before in your memory? Uh, not, not, certainly not to this degree. Look, mm -hmm. President Obama... Um, he he appealed to base. There 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 was a tone of them and us, mm -hmm. you know, in particularly in the twelve campaign. And in, in, in 08, it was um, you know, there's no red states, there no okay. But in twelve, he did appeal to, to his base. So so he was kind of setting the table. 
for someone who was not as internationalist as he was, someone who was more nativist than he was, and 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 then and, and a populist. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then he comes in and he just takes off from that launch pad and and heads in the direction he headed in. So you know, it's not that uh, any of us are without sin, but I don't think we've ever seen it to this degree, this regularly. I mean, it it's every day. Just yeah. read the Twitter feed. Yeah, it's funny. I find the people from the intelligence community are the ones most um, uh, kind of abhorred, abhorred by it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you spend a well, I you mean, spend a career kind of verifying yeah. verifying facts. And um, well, let me give, let me give another reason why we're horrified by it. All right, and I, 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 I put this in the book, but I probably should have put it in there more bold faced so it comes out. Look, I'm, I'm the first to admit that I spent most of my life doing things. That if you did, you'd be in jail. All right, we we are we are asked to do things no one else is asked to do, no one else is allowed to do. You know, the title of the first book, "Playing to the Edge," right. uh, and and so we did, and we're very aggressive. And 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 I am free to admit there are many moments in my life when the op, when the operational, ethical, and legal way ahead was a little ambiguous. All right, even even in the vanilla collecting information. I mean, if you suborn a code clerk in a foreign embassy, that's kind of vanilla intelligence, but you are suborning someone to betray an organization that technically deserves his loyalty. Uh, When you're listening to a conversation, even when it's between two folks that are legitimate intelligence targets, you are squeezing some other human being's privacy. And so we, we work in this morally ambiguous place a lot of the time. And Mark, the only thing that gives that activity a higher meaning, the only thing that gives it a higher purpose is that it is in, it is itself attached to a higher moral end. And, and if we stop believing that American policy is not attached to a higher moral end, that's why all the Intel guys are out here on TV wringing their hands. It's just not the oh. truth question. It's the why are you doing this question? It's taking, it's, yeah, it's pulling at the foundation of, of your, your, your purpose. It's one of the. Yes, exactly. But how could, you, how could you explain that? Like the Russians, I mean, they, they're about the size, they have a GDP the size of California. Um, I'm not no, sure. no, actually quite, actually much smaller than California. Much smaller than California? <laughs> California's doing well right now. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, actually, there are three American states who individually have economies bigger than Russia. New York, Texas, and California. Yeah, and bigger than Canada as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, but my thought was this. They have I, – I just read a little bit about just the size of their of their intelligence apparatus. I know it kind of shrunk down after 89, but – or maybe it didn't. But um, that it was maybe two to three times the size of the number of personnel that we have. I don't know if their technical capabilities are the same. But um, Yeah. But they have so many more people working on it, and it's been such a – it's been such a – um, I, well, I think even the post post revolutionary Russia with the Chekas and so forth, it was like yeah. it's it's been this very important part of their uh, national defense and security. Um, how do, how do they justify it? How do how do they justify it if you had to compare it to America? So, yeah, 
so so the, the 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 creation mythology of Russia. And it doesn't matter whether it's Russia or the Soviet Union. The creation mythology is a country under siege, uh, a, a country always being threatened from without, and and oh. therefore that that justifies what you and I would view to be excessive expenditures for espionage and and, and defense and, and 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 so on. And and Putin plays to that today. You know, that NATO encroachment, the movement of NATO east, eastward. I mean, when I, I did have some window into what his services were telling Putin when I was in my last couple of jobs. And it, it was remarkably conspiratorial uh, in terms of everyone was conspiring against them. I tell a story on myself that I was director of CIA for about 31 months. And in that 31 months, I went to 50 countries, more than 50 countries. Not one of those countries was named Russia. And yet, and yet, uh, I'm convinced Vladimir Putin thought I spent most of my waking hours thinking about how it was I was going to attack the Russian Federation. So you have to take that into consideration, Paul. Yeah. And that's one of those. Yeah, I mean, it, it explains. It doesn't excuse it. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, is, it is a badly flawed worldview. And mm -hmm. frankly, very bad for Russia and the Russian people. But that's what they got. But doesn't it seem now that that's the similar message that that's probably why Putin is just drawn to President Trump right now. Is one one of the reasons. I mean, besides him being a whatever the word you called it, the Russian word for it. But don't they have that kind of similar story that they're telling each other that we're victims? So, so I, I think it might be the other way around that, that President Trump is attracted to the personality of President Putin. Okay. Um, I, I use the phrase autocrat envy. Uh, you know, Putin is the go do this, go do that kind of guy that Trump wishes the American system allowed him to be. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's why you see uh, President Trump kind of friendly with um, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, why he doesn't seem to be pushing back hard against Erdogan in Turkey. I mean, these, these are all folks who are governing, I think, in a way that Trump would find uh, quite, quite attractive. From the Russian point of view, I, I think this is just pure manipulation. Sure. Right? This, you know, the, the, the Russian effort against the election to a first order was just to mess with our heads. Yeah, right. check. And then he hates Hillary Clinton. He really does. So, yeah, I'll, I'll beat up on her. Three, I guess she's going to be president. So let me make it as tough as possible by putting out all this dirt on her. And then about August, maybe September 2016, these guys go, boss, I think I could win. Whoa, that'll really work. And off they go to to really gen, genuinely push votes in the direction of Donald Trump. I mean, that that, that happened. Now, was it decisive? I don't know. Uh, it was it decisive. I don't think anybody will know. So right. we got to move on. We can't dwell on that. But that's what Putin wanted to have happen. I think the only other thing one thing it's in the news today that um, the direct uh, the director of Interpol has dis has disappeared. I guess he got off a plane in China and he. Yeah, he, he, dis he disappeared. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. And I got I got a Washington Post commentator of Saudi origin who went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and hasn't been seen in a week either. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And and and, and keep in mind that the countries we're, we're talking about here. All right. I understand Saudi Arabia is trying to undergo change. I understand China is an emerging power. But you know what? Those are not the rules that America used to be the champion of in a rules-based international order. 
And, and one of the distinctions of this administration to almost any of its predecessors since Truman is that it, it does not champion a rules-based order. It's all transactional. It's all zero-sum. Uh, so it's all in the here and now. So he's literally changed the climate of yes. – well, he's denying the climate change, but he's changed the climate of human rights <laughs> in, in, yeah. the, in the country. Oh, oh very, very much so. My, one of my last trips as director was in Egypt. And I talked about Omar Suleiman and, and Hosni Mubarak. And Omar asked me to stay an extra day and to meet with President Mubarak. So I yeah, okay, that's the only right answer is, yes, sir, I'll be there, Omar. So we went out to Heliopolis where the presidential palace was, walked into the room, small group, maybe six people. And for a better part of an hour, the president of Egypt just yelled at me uh, for America's, his view, misperception of the political situation in Egypt. You know, you gotta you gotta ease up on all this pressure on me about voting and human rights and right. who I've got in jail and who can be part of the parliament. You've got it wrong. You don't understand the situation here. Now, two years later, he's in jail. His government's gone. So I, I'm not so sure he had a good sight picture either. Yeah. Um, but but at least, and and, and frankly, we we're trying to help Hosni Mubarak, saying, you know, buddy, you're you're speeding in a cul-de-sac. You look like you're going fast, but you're not going anywhere. With the political st- the political structure you have is inherently brittle. And it, 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 it's not a winning hand, but you stuck with it. I don't think we're making those arguments anymore to people. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I think you call it a voice cut. Is that what you call it? <laughs> so anybody could listen in on this. They could call it. Do you call it a good cut? Yeah, it's good. This was it's a good. good. Yeah. This you, was a good you cut. Get, you, get a ton of, you can get a ton, a ton of intel reports out of this. Maybe the Russians already listened to it. Who knows? Um, yeah. yeah, I'd love to talk. I'd love to speak with you again sometime. This is really enjoyable. And I, I like how you, you brought up in the beginning. You said, you know, the, the role of the intelligence professional. We're, we talk first. We're the storytellers. Yeah, I enjoy your stories. There. That's kind. Thank you. And Thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, alrighty. Thank you very Great. much. Okay. Talk to you again. Thank you. Let's do it. Thank you very much.